This meeting was conducted and recorded on the lands of the Jagera and Yugambeh people, and we pay our respects to traditional owners past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. everyone, I'm Andrea, former registered nurse and midwife in private practice. Welcome to Beyond the Rona, where we're going to be doing some brainstorming with you all every fortnight to figure out the best ways to help our community build back better, now that we're starting to turn the corner and come through the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm Tim, I'm a digital marketer and business owner. Beyond the Rona is our chance as a community to participate and have our say in the issues that affect us all. So. We all believe that collectively we've got more power than we realise to actually make the changes that we want to see in our communities. Uh, you can listen to Beyond the Rona on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your pods, and you can watch us on YouTube uh, and stay up to date with us at beyond, beyondtherona.com. Today we're talking to Dr Joan Carlini, a researcher from Griffith University who conducted a study a year ago um, uh, into human behaviour and COVID-19, and also Kirsty Peterson, who's a family law mediator and community advocate in Logan, Queensland. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew and Tim. Um, so your research, Dr. Carlini, I had a look at it last night. Um, it was done in August 2020 in, um, in Queensland, Australia. And I just had a look at the conclusion, actually, and it's it said... Um, I'll just read it out. It said, in regards to receiving the COVID-19 vaccine, almost 70% of participants agreed that they would accept the vaccine with only 18% refusing it due to concerns um, raised over side effects, quality of testing and speed of vaccine development. So it seemed that we already knew what the problems were with vaccine hesitancy, like back in August, 2020, yet nobody really did anything about um, addressing vaccine hesitancy and and how were we going to you know sort of um, you know how were we going to raise these rates of vaccine um, uh, you know how were we going to address these concerns in the community we we knew what the problems were but did nothing about it um, are you surprised with the fact that nobody addressed these concerns in the in the time that we've had yeah look Andrea uh, it is really interesting. So the, the research was conducted a, a year ago and a lot has happened in a year, um, you know, around the vaccine rollout and, you know, different outbreaks. But I, I do believe that um, that research and the findings are still current and it's definitely in line with um, research that's coming out of America as well. Um, so there will always be a group of people um, that are unlikely to have the vaccine. Um, as well as, you know, other groups that are fully vaccinated, um, groups that have had one vaccinated vaccination, as well as groups that are interested um, in having the vaccination. Yeah, look, I, I do believe that um, the government and the media hasn't really used the research that we've conducted and lots of other people have conducted in a useful way to help inform the community um, about what their concerns are. Um, instead, you know, they've been focusing on, you know, micro issues and political gain and other things um, instead of really focusing on, you know, consumer psychology, what health consumers are thinking about and hel helping them to understand um, the importance of vaccination and the likely side effects. Yeah, and when you say political gain, I mean, 
you know, we had a health system. We had ways of getting this flu vax, you know, out to all of our communities. And yet, you know, I'm not sure why, but instead they decided to use the Defence Force to roll out, you know, the, the flu vax. I mean, uh, and this might be why we've had problems with the disability community, for example, that instead of using the health system to get the disability community vaccinated, you know, they decided to um, to use the Defence Force, which they didn't even go into the disability care homes to give these vaccinations. It's It's been a real problem. Yeah, look, I totally agree. But I think it comes from the mindset that, you know, this is a war on corona. Um, and so what do you do in wartime situations? You bring in the military, okay? Um, so it probably has a lot to do with the, um, the psyche of our leaders and how they're approaching this. Um, if they took like a more ground up approach, more of a health service approach, they would definitely have um, approached this differently. And then when we find out that, um, you know, workers in aged care facilities were not priority um, for vaccination, and then we hear stories around um, like a, a young a young person I know who lives with um, disability not being vulnerable enough to have um, to qualify for the vaccine. You know, there's there's been so many issues along the way, and then all of a sudden we're being told our vaccination rate is too low. Roll your sleeves up and get vaccinated, yeah. like um at, like you know that's on us. But in actual fact, um you know from the very beginning, um the the rollout has really been flawed. Yeah, and they really do need to listen to the community, um, put measures in place, really listen to understand what the issues are, and act on those issues rather than having this steamroll approach, you know, because we won't get to the vaccination targets that are required with this approach. Yeah, and it's been really, really difficult, I've, I've noticed, um, and especially from a health professional point of view. Um, some of the difficulties I've noticed is for, the, for people to actually understand how to make an appointment, um, to know, you know, at first we will put in these 1A, 1B, you know, all of these groups. Um, uh, you know, people didn't know exactly, you know, when these groups were coming up, when it was their time to go and get an appointment, um, you know, and there were really strange um, infection control practices coming out with from people who, you know, biz small businesses who didn't really know anything about infection control and they were putting all these infection control practices in their business um, that, you know, really didn't make sense. Um Kirsty, did you notice anything like on the ground in Logan? Um, you know, I know that Logan is considered like a lower socioeconomic area and, you know, they did have higher rates um, of COVID in these areas. Um, did you notice anything on the ground where, you know, people really needed a little bit more help to understand the system of how to get a vaccine and how to understand infection control and, you know, I suppose... Be, being a multicultural area as well, could could the messaging have been a little bit better? Yeah, I think the thing that I really noticed and that I was certainly hearing in Logan, and let's remember Logan has 270 different cultural um, people from different cultures. So we're a, a hugely diverse cultural city. Um, and I think that's the other thing that gets lost too. Logan is actually a city. It's it's not a suburb of Brisbane or the Gold Coast. It sits alone as its own city. Um, so people were saying exactly what you said. Even if they 
knew that, that they wanted to get it and had registered. They couldn't get it or, or there was a very long wait to get it and then they didn't know where to go to get it. Um, the Logan City Council was quite proactive and opened up the Logan Entertainment Centre. So it provided a large facility, but then there was a shortage of supply. So people, so a lot of the time it's the messaging. You think the, the story that is in the community is there's a facility that's available, but there's not a lot of supply. So if you go there, you're not going to get it anyway. So why bother going? So again, it's about that sort of messaging that's walking around in the community. Um, but I will say that the thing that the, the state government did very well was see what had happened in Sydney with its diverse communities. And um, shortly after that was very publicly displayed and discussed, um, they did reach out to local leaders in the Logan community and start working with um, individual sections of the community and the local leaders of those communities. So what I heard at the time was that those leaders were quite grateful and pleased that the government had reached out to them and were involving them in um, motivating and mobilising their people to understand what was going on because that was what we were hearing a lot too coming out of Sydney is that those communities didn't know what was happening, that they had come from often countries where... Um, and if somebody turns up at your door, that's a bad thing. So seeing the police around, um, seeing the defence force on the streets was was quite problematic for them. Um, so <laughs> what I heard was that at least Queensland was looking and seeing what had, had not worked successfully in other places and started to make some changes. Um, the other thing that was um, confounding is, again, for the disability community, um, a lot of what I heard from the people that I know is that um, there were people that were unable to get the vaccination and then confused about what that meant for their household, what that meant for other people that they knew, and there wasn't a lot of information around that. So the fear around would they be safe or what would happen if they were not able to get the vaccination was very unclear as well. Okay. So just the messaging in general was was you know, difficult on the top yeah. and then as it filters down, it becomes even more distorted in the in the community. Yeah. So, Tim, um, what do you think could have been done better, do you think, in terms of, like, messaging um, maybe? I mean, you saw the TV ads that the federal government eventually brought out. Um, you know, maybe um, people t talked about role models getting vaccinated at one stage, do you think that might have worked to address vaccine hesitancy? Um, what do you reckon? Yeah, kind of like in the, in the US, right, where they were using, you know, TikTokers and celebrities yeah. and, and whatnot to endorse. Yeah, and, and like I think as well, you know, just even from a digital standpoint and using social, like it feels like the, um, the, the government has been really slow um, and th this is like kind of across the board, but also getting on the front foot when you've got so much, you know, misinformation that moves so much faster. And I think it's not just unique to COVID and vaccines, but it's, you, you see this on in so many um, different areas where disinformation uh, just moves so quick. They can author it, they can share it, and they can make it uh, reach people masses of people very very quickly so it's almost like you you 
we kind of need a specialist, you know, response team in, 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 uh, you know, at local level maybe and, and, and at state or, or even federal level that is actually able to move quickly. Cause I understand that, you know, we need to know all the facts we need to know this, but it just slows everything down and just creates a vacuum whereby the misinformation moves in and suddenly creates this really bad situation in the, in the, in society. Because it's about mobilization, isn't it, too? Lots of people can send a text message to all their, their group of people who have an idea and then everybody gets on. It's it, And we saw it with the bushfires yeah. as well. Um, lots and lots of rhetoric around who was to blame, what, what the problem was. Um, then there was this discovery that the Prime Minister was not in the country, he was on holiday. And then that went... Um, I was going to use a fire related but probably not so great great choice of words um but that's if you went viral as well so you're you're totally right the inability of the government to mobilize quickly and broadly to offset what social media does really well um but in the negative by by sharing the disinformation um does have a, a, a big role to play in, I think, a lot of the, the vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, I think we not only had, um, you know, problems with, um, you know, I think one of our main problems with was mistrust with the government as well. I mean, we not only had the anti-vaxxers in our ear, but we had the mistrust of the government. Um, at the time, we had all of these, you know, um, like problems with, um, you know, the not the me too movement but you know the like yeah problems with women and the you know the the women problem with the liberal party and all of that stuff coming out as well and sports rorts and all of that stuff coming at the same time so then you know when they put all their money into Pfizer knowing full well that we didn't have the capability in GP clinics to actually keep it at minus 70 degrees where it needed to be kept cold. And then rural places weren't able to be to store it at minus 70 degrees. Um, but the reason why they chose Pfizer was because, uh, sorry, the reason why they chose AstraZeneca was because it was cheaper. Um, you know, that created a lot of mistrust as well. Um, and then you know, it kind of blew up with the blood clot thing and then people didn't want to have AstraZeneca and then they said, oh, no, now you can have AstraZeneca. Um, there was all that confusion in that messaging as well. Mm. So then people didn't think it was tested properly and, um, you know, yeah, there was a lot of mistrust. What do you, what do you think, Joan? Yeah, I think um, in general, health literacy is quite low. So generally in the community, we don't really understand health information. Um, and that's why we do need to work really hard to make sure that that health information is simple. Um, but then when you throw in, you know, um, distrust of, of government and certainly the actions of the government um, that we see hasn't helped. Um, you know, one example might be that... Um, you know, we, we have a hard border shut, uh, you know, with Queensland, um, and which has caused immense um, hardship for a lot of people, not just on that border, um, people trying to get to our um, tertiary hospitals to get care, um, all sorts of issues. But then, you know, we pay, um, you know, millions of dollars for a sporting event. Um, and we fly, you know, these these sports athletes into um, Queensland as well as their families. And quite often they're seeing 
doing the wrong thing as well, you know, um, taking drugs in public places and whatever else. People are really angry, you know, so there's a lot of people that are doing the right thing and they should be commended for doing the right thing. You know, they're following the government advice as closely as they can. But then when they see this, you know, that they, they feel like um, they're being taken for granted. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not really simple. There are so many factors, you know, yes, it's our understanding and misinformation, but also um, the government needs to be consistent in their actions and make sure that, you know, they make everyone feel respected. And there's that buck passing too from levels of government. So I was listening to a podcast the other day of um, a high-ranked LNP minister federally and um, all they talked about was the difficulty of um, being between the, the two jurisdictions, both federally and state, and how that has been just so... traumatic for the federal government because even when they had similar or the same um, political philosophies, there's different political motivations. So what's motivating the federal government is different from what's motivating a state government and then, again, very different from what's motivating a a local council government. Um, And certainly what I've seen in Logan is that the local council government who is focused on its local communities... Um, has done a much better job than any of the other levels of government. Um, But the buck passing, every time there's something that goes wrong, the state government says, oh, well, the federal government didn't do this. And then the federal government says, oh, but if if only the state government would have let us do or, or, or whatever it is. And I think that's some of the problem too that we've seen with the police and the Australian Defence Force is ADF are under federal jurisdiction and police are under state jurisdiction. So again, there was little coordination between the two and and what we saw was this huge overkill and then people are worried and scared um, because you've got the Defence Force roaming the streets, which we don't see that in Australia, um, and you've also got police with a huge um, presence on the streets. Again, which we usually don't see in Australia. You know, police come in their flashing vehicle and they do what they do and then they leave. Yeah. Kirsty, can I add to that? Um, and we've seen that on the news in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, the police and, and um, you know, the armed forces on the street. And I actually think that this has led to another problem. Not all the people um, that are rioting and are not vaccinated, they're not necessarily anti-vaxxers, they're pro-choice. And so this mm. has actually brought in another issue. Um, and, you know, when when um, people are being labelled anti-vaxxers, I really don't think that's very fair and really unhelpful as well, um, because within that group of people who are not vaccinated, um, there might be some people who truly believe they don't want to be vaccinated. But then there's another group of people, like I said before, that are really cautious. Um, they don't want to, you know, harm um, their unborn baby or, or their their ability to um, reproduce in the future. And we have examples of, you know, um, where um, medicines have been approved and caused deformities in, you know, children. So, you know, there are examples where we have trusted um, different medicines and, you know, I guess, you know, things have gone wrong. And also just like I said before, pro-choice as well, like people are really not used to being told that this is the way you have to act and here we've got the armed forces in the streets to making sure you comply. And so that frustration of, you know, uh, mental health issues, um, problems with their um, 
economic, you know, they don't have money coming in. I think this is all just boiled over and people are writing. It's not necessarily got to do with, oh, I don't want to be vaccinated. It's got to do with, what about me? You know, like, look at me. Like, you know, I'm really struggling here. Is this the first... And a lot of the time they just don't want to be told what to do, yeah. exactly what, you, what you've said. Is this the first time maybe that um, people have really started looking into the vaccination schedule? I mean, people have just kind of lined up their babies for all these vaccinations and never really thought anything of it. Yeah. I mean, is this the first time they've actually thought about it? I mean, what about... Gardasil, for example, and what about, you know, rotavirus and all these other new vaccinations that have come in? Nobody's said anything about that. Nobody's, you know, protested in the street about these other new ones. That's right. Um, it's a combination of factors. Yeah, it's kind of, it's strange to me. Um, okay, um, so I guess, um, you know, what do you think... Um, could have been done differently, Joan, do you think? Um, you know, how do you think um, it could have been managed differently? Is, it, is this my three big ideas, um, Andrea? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. What are you... Yeah, look, um, I, I never... Look, it's never too late, right? You know, um, so first of all, I think we just need to understand what's happening a lot better. Um, so, you know... The research that we're talking about that I conducted with my team is a year old now. Uh, I think it is still valid, but I think we could be doing more research and I'm, and I'm sure it is being conducted. But also just looking at that research to understand what's going on. Like I said before, I've um, got onto research coming out of America because it's really current um, and they do spend a lot of time doing their research. I would be absolutely using um, current statistics to understand what's going on. Like I said before, there's a group that's unlikely to get vaccinated at this point. Well, that's okay. Start um, focusing on the cautious and the interested. And so, and they are two different approaches. So the mass vac centers that are opening this weekend and this massive Pfizer weekend, that will help the interested people get vaccinated because you do that via reducing barriers, um, increasing access and reducing like costs as well. Like, you know, so people don't have to be off work or if they can do it on a weekend and they don't feel well, well, they can stay in bed and, you know, they don't need to go to work the next day or, you know, their kids um, are at home as well. So that's a really important strategy. So well done on, you know, ticking that box. Um, but also this cautious group, I think is a real concern. Um, because it's a, it, I mean, they're they're valid, validly concerned about their health and the health of their family, and so we need to think more carefully. We need to do more research into this group. It should be a fairly small um, group of well, eight percent in America, and like I said, like I said earlier, our statistics are in line with theirs. Um, so we could expect it to be about eight to ten percent in Australia. Um, so they're going to need um, understanding. So let's get in and understand this particular group. In America, it's mainly women um, who are concerned about their uh, fertility. So we need to understand, you know, what their concerns are, have them book into their trusted GP and talk to their GP and really understand what the side effects are and have a chat. You know, we're focusing on 
on Pfizer and AstraZeneca. There's a whole range of other drugs coming onto the market as well. Um, I don't know the technology or the medicine behind them, um, but maybe if we could unpack, you know, because this group is really interested, so they're willing to take in a lot of information. Maybe we can unpack that for them. Well, you know, this is, you know, this is what these different drugs look like. Um, and also, one of my way forward is to really uh, look at what's happening internationally. I think, like many people, I'm really tired of hearing um, what's happening in Sydney and Melbourne. I know it's important, but I don't need to know every day what the new case numbers are. That is actually really not helpful. I want people, um, you know, commenting from the UK. I've got friends in the UK. They're going to work. They're going to the football. The stands are packed. I want to know how many cases are in the UK, how many are vaccinated, how many are unvaccinated, how many of those are going into IC, uh, ICU, then how many are going on to ventilators. I want to see what the future is. And, you know, countries like um, Italy that were ravaged, well, how are they coping? What have they done? Has that been successful? And then there's other countries that are actually up to booster shots. Well, that's of real interest to me. We haven't hit, or we've, we're at, you know, between 50 and 80% um, to vax in Australia. Yeah, Queensland is up to 50% now. Yeah. Today, yeah. yes. Um, but other, other countries are having booster shots. Well, what does that look like? You know, I'm interested in that as well. Like, you know, is this something um, that, you know, we'll require? Um, will our travel, international travel, be dependent on these booster shots? So I just think that there is so much readily available information that could really help Australia and Australians um, and, you know, really help us understand on understand what we should be doing and, and in which direction we should be moving. You know, like, we're like, oh, okay, let's celebrate. We're going to move into home quarantine. Great. But but what's down the track, you know, like what are other countries doing that they can take the public transport to work and have massive football, you know, matches, you know, what does that look like? So that's, for me, that's the steps forward. Um, number one, understanding what's going on. Two, you know, reducing barriers and providing information um, for specific people. Um, so a deep understanding of their concerns. And three, in looking ahead, really looking to these other countries and really simplifying that information and bringing it back to Australia within case studies. This country's doing this, this is what's happening. That's it from me. Yeah, and um, Kirsty, I think um, maybe, I'm not sure whether the giant um, hubs were actually um, a good thing or whether we should have actually had, you know, smaller, you know, smaller health hubs that might have helped in our particular community, you know, so that we could have had more one-on-one -on -one with um, like the multicultural groups. What What's your opinion on that one? Or, um, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, there was a lot of difficulty um, getting appointments locally. So, um, and a lot of uh, sharing of information in local groups around, um, I was just at this medical center and got mine and they said they have appointments. This medical center is taking new um, patients because of, uh, there was misinformation around that as well that you couldn't just turn up to any GP clinic that you had to be a patient a previous patient of that clinic um, there was information around don't go to this one because they'll charge you extra on top of the Medicare rebated appointment so you have to have a consult first 
and it's a long consult and they'll charge you this amount and then you can get your vaccine. So there was a lot of information being shared in local community groups. Um, but it, it was hearsay to a degree. Um, so whether it was reliable or not is unknown. Um, there's, there's no evidence to suggest that it wasn't reliable because it was everyday people getting on saying, this was my experience, this what happened is what happened for me. So when it came to um, you know, the, the large entertainment centre or local GP clinics, again, it was just about information. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things, if I go into my three, um, all the things that Dr. Carlini has said are you know, so vitally important. But I think one other aspect of that too is I've heard a lot in the local groups and um, from local community leaders about treatment. So what happens if you get diagnosed with um, COVID-19 when Queensland gets COVID-19? So at the moment, there's small cases. The health system doesn't have a lot of pressure around um, patient numbers. But once COVID comes into Queensland and it's spreading throughout the community, what is that going to look like for us? Are we going to just, you know, go to the fever clinic and do the nose swab and then go home and wait to die? Or what point do we ring the ambulance? And these were some of the things that yeah. we were seeing in Sydney. People didn't know when to yeah, ring the ambulance. That's right. They didn't know. They were ha hearing that if they went to the hospital, they'd be turned away. Um, so, again, sharing of information, having the plan very well known it, you know we see the ads for it's storm season have you got a plan um it's about to be covid season in queensland and nobody knows what the plan is mm. um and again just going back to treatment so there's lots of information about treatments that are being used overseas um and and feeding into some of the um you know vaccine hesitancy you hear a lot of well i'm just taking my vitamin b and i'm trusting my immune system mm -hmm. Um, and some of that is not incorrect um, because the healthier you are when you get COVID, then the stronger your body is to be able to fight it off. So not, some of these competing ideas are actually not co in competition with each mm. other. And again, it's just about information. So mm. and if you get COVID, what, what are you going to expect? What can you do to strengthen your immune system and you know, to be in the best physical condition possible when COVID hits Queensland? Um, do we all need to go and lose 10 kilos before COVID? Is, is, because we know that obesity is yeah, a, a comorbidity. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, is, is that what we all need to do? Or do we need to take the vitamin C tablets? Do we need to, you know, just drink 20 cups of water a day? What sort of things can we do to prepare for the COVID onslaught? Because, because they tell us what to do to prepare for storm season. Yeah. They tell us what to do what to do to prepare for cyclone season in, in other areas yeah. of Queensland. But nobody's talking about what to do to prepare for COVID. Yeah. They're not telling us what it's going to look like. Um, we've seen in, in other jurisdictions that, that when it does spread throughout the community, um, there's certain demographics that are impacted and, and mm. what happens then? Yeah. So, you know, what happens when a mother and a father in the same home are both in, in a hospital? What happens with the children? Who's paying the electricity bill? Do they get out of hospital and come home to no water or electricity and a resumption notice on their on their front door because they haven't paid their mortgage for six mm. weeks? You know, none of these questions have any answers. And so people are scared, people are worried. And when you don't have answers to the questions, yeah. um, again, the misinformation starts yeah. spreading because I heard that this is what happens or I heard this. And so the, 
on the ground level, the grassroots conversations um, spread like wildfire. That's a really good point, Kirsty. It's very, very interesting that actually there should be um, more information about when it happens because I was at a, a health conference a few days ago and um, the what was said was every day that Queensland is without Delta is a gift. Uh, and I take that as, you know, um, it will be here, like you said, and it will spread like wildfire. And that's a really good point. I haven't even thought about, yeah. um, you know, what I will do when, when that happens. Yeah, so absolutely. And we need to know. I'm to just shut my doors and stay home again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 yeah, but it's like everybody is saying, COVID is an inevitability. Um, getting COVID is an in inevitability. We need to learn to live with COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're opening up our border to international travel for Australians and for there to be no restrictions on Australians coming home. And, and yet we've got no idea what we that actually looks like. We don't know how to live with it. Exactly. No. Yeah. And you can do quarantine at home, but does that mean if I go overseas for two-week holiday, let's say I go to Bali for a week, do I, do I actually need to take three weeks off work because exactly. I have to quarantine at home for two weeks? Exactly. Or can I work from home for two weeks? So, again, you know, there's just all these questions yeah. around what does it look like practically or, or you know, tell, tell me what's actually it? going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, the how. Yeah. Tim, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, so how, when people are going through, you know, Facebook or whatever, like how are, spe are people supposed to pick and choose between what is good information and what is um, bad information when it comes to, um, you know, figuring out, what's a conspiracy theory and what isn't you know how are people supposed to pick and choose and find the right path you know because if, if they are um you know um mistrusting of government sites um of course they're going to head down the conspiracy theory way so how are people supposed to find their way well I guess the good news is is that there are a lot of teams and you know kind of divisions and tech companies trying to trying to figure that out, like trying to help help users make more informed decisions. Because it is about kind of like firstly digital literacy, but also um, just good old fashioned research. So what um, some people are saying is, you know, just making sure that there are a number of different sources and that those sources are known and rep you know, reputable sources. So it's not just one voice uh, from someone on YouTube that has, you know, 100 subscribers. Um, I, I think it is about like kind of making sure that there are enough sources. And I think that actually as well, where we get a lot of our news and where we get information, sure, it's in news feeds. And so news feeds on all the social channels need to be better at flagging that kind of stuff. They can al already flag things like, uh, this this particular post is about COVID, so put, you know, like government mandated, you know, links and whatnot. But also um, just being able to also, uh, you know, make it really clear who the author is, whether that whether that site that's connected to that um, is actually like foreign owned or, you know, that there's some movements happening there to, to mm -hmm. just help uh, flag content in newsfeed and help people understand a little bit more about these sources. Um, this, this has been used in, in the past to, to spread misinformation where um, fake sites or, or sites that have just kind of sprung up suddenly uh, become highly active and they get highly engaged and so that content goes further. Um, but I think it does start with that and it's, I, I was also quite um, happy to hear that you know schools are also trying to really address this and, and teaching kids 
and, and young adults about uh, how they can be more discerning about what they see online. So my, I, I'm, I'm positive that I think we can get over this, this issue um, soon. Tim, that's really interesting. It's like a nutritional pa um, a nutritional panel, um, but for social yeah. media, um, a disclosure of um, the the behind where that information comes from. That is a really interesting concept. I hope it um, I hope it goes further. That we've got we've got an element of that currently on some of the social channels. So at least on on the Facebook in the Facebook world, there they flag. Uh, there's a tool called Ad Transparency where you can see. Um, you know, when, when an advertiser is running ads that would no, no, not normally be seen publicly. So they've got a level of transparency for advertisers and for government, it's even more, you can actually see the ad spend, you know, that government um, is making. But what we aren't seeing at the moment is that, is that organic content where, you know, uh, you, can, you can post anything and it can be from a WordPress site that you spun up last night and it can be very controversial and get lots of likes and then go off. And there's no kind of like transparency around that. So I think once they've addressed organic content, we'll be in a much better place. Okay, well, thanks for joining me, Dr. Joan Carlini and Kirsty Peterson. Um, yeah, it's been a great discussion today. Uh, you've been listening to Beyond the Rona. Captioned audio is available on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to visit beyondtherona.com to listen to previous episodes or to get in touch. Catch you next time.